Mildred Lawson, Chapter One of Celibates by George Moore. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by James Carson. The tall double stalks were breathing heavily in the dark garden. The delicate sweetness of the syringa moved as if on tiptoes towards the windows. But it was the aching smell of lilies that kept Mildred awake. As she tossed to and fro, the recollections of the day turned and turned in her brain, ticking loudly, and she could see each event as distinctly as the figures on the dial of a great clock. What a strange woman that Mrs. Fargus! Her spectacles, her short hair, and that dreadful cap which she wore at the tennis party. It was impossible not to feel sorry for her. She did look so ridiculous. I wonder her husband allows her to make such a guy of herself. What a curious little man, his great cough, and that foolish shouting manner. A good-natured, empty-headed little fellow. They are a funny couple. Harold knew her at Oxford. They were at the same college. She took honors at Oxford. That's why she seemed out of place in a little town like Sutton. She is quite different from her husband. He couldn't pass his examinations. He had been obliged to leave. What made them marry? I don't know anything about Comte. I wish I did. It is so dreadful to be ignorant. I never felt my ignorance before, but that little woman does make me feel it. Not that she intrudes her learning on anyone. I wish she did, for I want to learn. I wish you could remember what she told me. That all knowledge passes through three states. The theological, the, the metaphysical, and the scientific. We are religious when we are children. Metaphysical when we are one and twenty. And as we get old, we grow scientific. And I must not forget this that what is true for the individual is true for the race. In the earliest ages man was religious. I wonder what our vicar would say if he heard this. In the Middle Ages man was metaphysical, and in these latter days he is growing scientific. The other day when I came into the drawing-room she didn't say a word. I waited and waited to see if she would speak. Nope, not a word. She sat reading. Occasionally she would look up, stare at the ceiling, and then take a note. I wonder what she put down on that slip of paper. But when I spoke she seemed glad to talk, and she told me about Oxford. It evidently was the pleasantest time of her life. It must have been very curious. There were a hundred girls, and they used to run in and out of each other's rooms, and they had dances. They danced with each other and never thought about men. She told me she never enjoyed any dances so much as those, and they had a gymnasium and special clothes to wear there, a sort of bloomer costume. It must have been very jolly. I wish I had gone to Oxford, girls dancing together and never thinking about men. How nice! At Oxford they say that marriage is not the only mission for women, that is to say, for some women. They don't despise marriage, but they think that for some women there is another mission. When I spoke to Mrs. Fargus about her marriage, she had to admit that she had written to her college friends to apologize. No, not to apologize, she said, but to explain. She was not ashamed, but she thought she owed them an explanation. 
Just fancy any of the girls in Sutton being ashamed of being married. The darkness was thick with wandering scents, and Mildred's thoughts withered in the heat. She closed her eyes, she lay quite still, but the fever of the night devoured her, the sheet burned like a flame. She opened her eyes and was soon thinking, as eagerly as before. She thought of the various possibilities that marriage would shut out to her for ever. She reproached herself for having engaged herself to Alfred Stanby, and remembered that Harold had been opposed to the match, and had refused to give his consent until Alfred was in a position to settle five hundred a year upon her. Alfred would expect her to keep house for him exactly as she was now keeping house for her brother. Year after year the same thing seeing Alfred go away in the morning, seeing him come home in the evening. That was how her life would pass. She did not wish to be cruel. She knew that Alfred would suffer terribly if she broke off her engagement, but it would be still more cruel to marry him if she did not think she would make him happy, and the conviction that she would not make him happy pressed heavily upon her. What was she to do? She could not, she dared not, face the life he offered her. It would be selfish of her to do so. The word selfish suggested a new train of thought to Mildred. She argued that it was not for selfish motives that she desired freedom. If she thought that, she would marry him tomorrow. It was because she did not wish to lead a selfish life that she intended to break off her engagement. She wished to live for something. She wished to accomplish something. What could she do? There was art. She would like to be an artist. She paused, astonished at the possibility. But why not she, as well as the other women whom she had met at Mrs. Fargus's? She had met many artists, ladies who had studios at Mrs. Fargus's. She had been to their studios and had admired their independence. They had spoken of study in Paris and of a village near Paris where they went to paint landscape. Each had a room at the inn. They met at mealtimes and spent the day in the woods and fields. Mildred had once been fond of drawing, and in the heat of the summer night she wondered if she could do anything worth doing. She knew that she would like to try. She would do anything sooner than settle down with Alfred. Marriage and children were not the only possibilities in woman's life. The girls, she knew, thought so, but the girls Mrs. Fargus knew didn't think so. And rolling over in her hot bed, she lamented that there was no escape for a girl from marriage. If so, why not Alfred Stanby? He, as well as another. But no, she could not settle down to keep house for Alfred for the rest of her life. She asked herself again why she should marry at all. What it was that compelled all girls, rich or poor, it was all the same, to marry and keep house for their husbands. She remembered that she had five hundred a year, and that she would have four thousand a year if her brother died. The distillery was worth that, but money made no difference. There was something in life which forced all girls into marriage, with their will or against their will. Marriage, marriage, always marriage, always the eternal question of sex, as if there was nothing else in the world. But there was much else in life. There was a nobler purpose in life than keeping house for a man. 
Of that she felt quite sure, and she hoped that she would find a vocation. She must first educate herself, so far she knew, and that was all that was at present necessary for her to know. But how hot it is! I shan't be able to go out in the court tomorrow. I wish everything would change, especially the weather. I want to go away. I hate living in a house without another woman. I wish Harold would let me have a companion, a nice elderly lady, but not too elderly, a woman about forty, who could talk, someone like Mrs. Fargus. When mother was alive it was different. She had been dead now three years, how long it seems. Poor mother, I wish she were here. I scarcely knew much of father. He went to the city every morning, just as Harold does, by that dreadful ten minutes past nine. It seems to me that I have never heard of anything all my life but that horrible ten minutes past nine and the half-past six from London Bridge. I don't hear so much about the half-past six, but the ten minutes past nine is never out of my head. Father is dead seven years, mother is dead three, and since her death I have kept house for Harold. Then, as sleep pressed upon her eyelids, Mildred's thoughts grew disjointed. Alfred, I have thought it all over. I cannot marry you. Do not reproach me, she said, between dreaming and waking. And, as the purple space of sky between the trees grew paler, she heard the first birds. Then dream and reality grew indistinguishable, and listening to the caroling of a thrush, she saw a melancholy face and then a dejected figure pass into the twilight. End of Mildred Lawson, Chapter 1 Recording by James Carson